0: Welcome to Dumpy Little Unicorn. Today I'm joined by Anna Smith-Spark, author of the glorious Empires of Dust trilogy. Anna, welcome.
1: Hi, hi Jane. It's really cool to be here.
0: Thanks for joining me today. Now, you recently have published The House of Sacrifice, which is the final book in the Empires of Dust trilogy. How does it feel to have completed to have a completed trilogy out in the world
1: oh my goodness it's it's so strange it's such a weird feeling I mean the books I think I've spoken sort of before about the fact that I didn't sort of sit down and think oh I'm going to write a fantasy series I just started writing mm-hmm. and I wrote everything that meant stuff to me Marathon Thalia I think have been the kind of central characters of all the stories I told myself when I was a child. They've always been with me. Thalia's my D and D character for two years. Like all the stuff in the book, all the settings and the landscapes and the cities, they're all based on the things I really love. And they're all um they're all the things I've always feel and felt when I've read fantasy and when I've read history and when I've been like out walking in the British countryside and things. So to have it all there, I outside of me externally on bookshelves done is a really strange thing it kind of feels it's a really really strange thing it feels like i've sort of emptied myself out mm-hmm. it feels like a, like a part of me is just out there in the world and the fact it's done marathon Thali's story is done and told is such a strange thing i felt really it was really really strange finishing the book and just sitting back and kind of realizing i i told it i'd finished it it's been a really it's been strange very strange
0: I mean, it's such an accomplishment, really. it really is. And it's also such a vivid world. And you mentioned just there that um you had um sort of, you know, you, you played sorry in a in a D and D game and stuff. And I was just wondering where else you got your inspiration from.
1: Oh just kind of just everything, just all the things. So, um I've always really loved classical mythology and Norse mythology and Celtic mythology. I mean, I'm really immensely lucky. My father's a poet. He brought me up with a huge immersion in different literary traditions. And he really is interested in ancient history and in sort of um, British history and in British folklore. Um, I just kind of grew up with but surrounded by versions of the Maginogion, or Smith's Tale of Troy, and then kind of stuff like um, this amazing book, all well, that sort of paranormal stuff about Britain, this amazing book, Janet and Colin Boards, their um Mysterious Britain, which is all the kind of stuff about folk tales and black shark and ghost stories and standing stones and all the stories collected with them and the kind of the real stories about how those things came to be. And I just kind of grew up with all that stuff. We used to go on holiday in Cornwall every year. And we'd be kind of out walking the countryside and I'd have read these books, which all we'll talked about, you know, the Cornish owl man, and kind of folklore around Standing Stones and St. Michael's Mount and things. And then I'd be reading the Mabinogion and all of that stuff just kind of was just always there. So um, when I was writing, it all just came out. I studied classics and obviously there's a lot of classical allusions to classical texts, the yeah. Iliad and Greek tragedy. I studied those, I've seen quite a few Greek tragedies on stage, I've had to translate bits of the Iliad from Greek to English, that amazing passage where Achilles appears on the plain of Troy to avenge Patroclus in his new armour and he's shining like the dog star Sirius, um, which obviously I quote I sort of referenced quite a lot in the book, but um, yes. I had to translate that from Greek to English <laughs> under exam conditions in the American church on Tottenham Court Road with someone practising the trumpet in the next room, which okay. is not <laughs> I would recommend to anyone and scars you for life.
0: I can imagine it would. So, yes. <laughs> um So, yeah, it, it does sound like you had quite an Id- idyllic childhood with surrounded by all these mythologies and all these books and all these stories and it's it's all sort of percolated away
1: yes yes definitely yes I mean well my, I mean my dad writes lot sort of his friends are writers or poets or kind of otherwise involved in um sort of some involved in publishing things so yeah it was just kind of perfectly perfectly normal to write and to think want to write it was it was an absolutely amazing childhood I'm so incredibly grateful constantly for the kind of depth of richness I had when I was growing up Mm -hmm. and and actually horribly aware how much children's education now is stripping all that magic away from reading it's just so depressing but anyway
0: oh yeah it it's it's being stripped back to just the bits and pieces and the, the literal mechanics of it but there's no beauty in it and that was one of the things that really struck me about your writing is your subject matter is is incredibly dark but the prose is absolutely beautiful and um yeah it it's it's one of those things i think that if if children aren't given a love of language then they don't you know necessarily want to read they don't want to sort of engage with language in the same way that you know um that you can
1: Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, again, I was just so lucky to be exposed to such a wide variety of language, huge number of books and sort of art from a really young age. And yeah, it was incredibly privileged, but it's also, it shouldn't be a privilege. It makes me so sad. My daughter actually came home from school a while ago in tears because they've been taught that the the first page of the hobbit is not a good introduction to a book because it doesn't obey some rules that someone had set up for how a book should begin because obviously it begins with that incredibly the, the waffle info dump about hobbits yeah oh, she was just heartbroken <laughs> you know that kind of yeah you know, if you never teach people that glories and wonders of language and just reduce it to this kind of bizarre grammatical stuff she comes home talking about grammatical terms that oh, I, I have a phd in english and I don't have a clue what she's talking about. <laughs> but now that's what it's all reduced to now. And it oh, it makes me so sad. But yeah, just that kind of just experiencing fascinating strange things and strange stories and things is so important to me. And yeah, I mean actually dark stories are often very beautiful. If you read the Norse myths, they're so 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 raw and unpleasant most, Mm -hmm. they're so beautiful, they're just incredibly beautiful and striking and powerful and things like Beowulf and they're incredibly striking, powerful stories, they are just very, very dark and sad and bleak and I really wanted to bring that across, I wanted to kind of, I mean it kind of, it was in it, I couldn't help it, I just sort of wrote the way I always write, I've always wanted to write, I've always sort of seen that's always been the way i've written but yeah i know it was just a kind of very natural thing but it was the privilege It's incredible the, the product this incredible immersion in language i've always had
0: so um i've i've read the first two novels i haven't quite got around to the third one yet but i'm really looking forward to it how would you describe your work to someone who hasn't read your work before
1: oh my goodness um it is very poetic, it is quite complicated, um, it is ta- it is taking a very very simple traditional high fantasy narrative, the narrative of the kind of the young man's quest, the hero's journey, and doing stuff with it. It's, it's almost kind of mythological, it's not like a lot of modern fantasy novels in some ways, it is quite kind of mythological. It's been compared to people it's often it has been compared to people like Michael Moorcock and even Ursula Gwynne, which was that was the most incredible moment. <laughs> but yeah, that kind of quite complicated literary poetic form of fantasy, um, which makes it sound makes me sound so appallingly not myself. I like, talk about myself like that, but I That was <laughs> um, But yeah, I no, mean it's kind of it's not probably a particularly easy read in some ways um there are there's this famous review i have where someone took the book back after they'd read the first half of the first page and they went all the way back to the bookshop to demand their money back because <laughs> so it was unreadable <laughs> which i'm kind proud of um but yeah it's um there's a wonderful uh a you know there's reviews that people in waterstones can put up on the bookshelves yes. produce book. there's um one in waterstones bloomsbury um had a thing. They had a thing up on the shelf for my book saying, "Joe Abercrombie meets Leonard Cohen in a particularly filthy public toilet," which is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. I do a lot of my writing for Leonard Cohen, actually. I adore Leonard Cohen. And oh, I, I did too. Yeah, and there are some sneaky references to his songs in in the books. And yeah, no, was just, that was just just mind-blowingly wonderful. And does so it does sum it up perfectly, I think.
0: Okay. Now, do you have a reading for
1: us today? I do have a reading for you, yes. I'm actually going to read you the first chapter of the House of Sacrifice.
0: Okay, lovely.
1: Right, so. Okay, first, a very, very brief bit of context, just for anyone who is entirely unfamiliar with things. This is a short chapter, which is the, the point of view character is a woman, whose husband is a great king ruling over a a world empire. So, The House of Sacrifice, Chapter 1. Hail him, behold him, wolf lord, lord of carrion, joy to the sword that is girt with blood, man killer, life stealer, death bringer, life's thief, King thrones, glorious his rule, the seas and shore, the stones of the mountains, the eagles, the fleet deer, the wild beasts, men in their cities, rich in wisdom. All are bound to him. His word is law. With bloody hands he governs, sets his rule and his measure, a strong tree, a storm at evening, the sun rising up to swallow a ship. The night coming, the sudden light that makes the eyes blind. The flood tide, the famine, the harrowing, the pestilence. King and warrior, golden one, shiny, glorious. Life's judgment, life's pleasure, grave of hope. The city of Athalden, that is the most beautiful place on all the black earth of Elast. Its towers are made of pearl and silver. Its walls are solid gold. It stands on a great plain of rich grassland, on the banks of the river Jaxatane, that flows down wild to the cold, dark, endless sea. It is a jewel beyond comparing, the glory of all the world, wondrous thing. Look upon it and be blinded, dazed by its magnificence. Fall upon your knees, worship, marvel, worship. Oh, you who are nothing, you who are but maggots, crawling pitifully in the bitter dust. Kneel and give thanks. Rejoice that you have lived to see it, that such brilliance was raised in this blessed era of the world's end. Perfection is built here. Kneel, kneel, cry out in terror, turn away your eyes from its radiance. Its streets are paved with marvel, its palaces are ivory and white glass. Its bells ring out in music, the air is filled with perfumes, the river runs clear, the corn grows golden, the trees are heavy with sweet fruit. Treasure houses stacked with wealth. Wealth beyond mortal ken, numberless are its herds, its flocks, its rich horses, its people dress in silks and satins, its women beautiful as goddesses, its men strong as giants, in their eyes is the light of knowledge and power over all things. Its foundations are living bodies, flesh putrefying, blo- bones cracking beneath its weight. Its mortar is but tears and blood. At its heart there stands a palace of desolation, built in honour of a mighty king. Such a king. You think, do you, that he would have died somewhere, in the desert, on the shores of the White Isles, in the ruins of Ethaldon, if I had not saved him? That none of this would have taken place. You think, do you, that without him the world would be at peace. If he died, Do you think that there would be no war, no cruelty, no murder, no pain? The world would be a good and loving place. Why do we do this? I asked him once. And he looked out across the world that we have made and did not speak. If not me, he said at last, then perhaps someone else. My own city of Solos, they say, has been brought low by killing violence. We did not do that. The people of Solost deserved it, you will say. Child killers, blood sodden. Their city is based on murder. Go there, Thalia, send Marith your husband there to punish them. The people of Solost are wise. They merely make visible what all the world is based on. Take the bread your children are eating. Send them to bed hungry. Give the bread instead to the starving poor. No. In Solost, at least, they do not lie. In a thousand, our tower built on human suffering. We do not lie. Austin Field is a bad man for following him, for doing as he orders, for being his friend. Ossen wants power and wealth, does not care where it comes from. Oh, yes, I wish Ossen were not his friend. But I am worse because I married him, because I live my life, because I do not stick a knife into his throat. To me, he has always been kind and loving. To me, he is a good man. As for the rest, I turn my eyes away from it, as we all do. Refugees and beggars stagger across the world, men, women, children. Their tears are a drowning flood. What do you do? What more can be expected of me? Should I be better than anyone else's? It grieves me, yes, I weep over it, what we have come to, what the world is. In a different life, in a different place. There is no different life. There is no different place. There is here and now. There's what I have, what I can be, what I can do. Kill him? Oh, it's rather too late for that, is it not? Leave him? Why should I do that? Because it would be a better thing than staying with him? Because I should suffer from marrying him? Because he has done harm to others, and thus I should not find pleasure in his love? Because he is a bad man? And so I should not love him, because you do not want me to love a bad man, because I am... What? Because I should be better than that? If I ran away to the other side of Elas, dressed myself in sackcloth and ashes, did penance with aching hands, tended the starving, kissed the wounds of the sick. So what? So what? You do not expect Austin to leave and renounce all of this. You do not expect this of any of his friends. You will say, perhaps still, that I am a fool, love-struck, blinded, his victim, that I would flee from him if I could, because we sit together, talk, laugh, argue, hold great feasts and parties, walk in the gardens, ride in the fields, sit quietly to read. I am trying to improve his taste in poetry. He is introducing me to the purnished stories of his childhood. But I should not love him, because... We march onwards, an army like a storm, like the clouds rushing over the sun. The world trembles. The men in their bronze armour sing the pay and hold their heads high, smile as they march. The world bows before us. Every soldier here in our army, they are as mighty as kings. Life is good. Life is joyous for them. That is not a good thing, no. No. It would be better, indeed, if we were all to be men of peace. But we are not men of peace. I will not be blamed for living my life.
0: Okay, that was fabulous. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Wow. just listening to that it just reminded me of sort of when I, I did sort of A-level theatre studies and um, did that was where I sort of encountered some classics and it just kind of reminded me of that the, sort of the speeches that you get in sort of like the Greek tragedies it was beautiful <laughs> yeah kind of, I
1: mean it is kind of I have very ambiguous feelings about people like Medea when people kind of hold Medea up and say oh she's such a kick-ass badass feminist heroine i'm like really she (laughs) kills her children because she's in a strop because her husband's husband's having an affair with someone else i mean i'm sorry but kind of really that's really (laughs) yeah not but um just because she's tough it doesn't mean she's a feminist but um yes but no yeah i mean yeah the kind of great speeches i saw an absolutely amazing production of the agamemnon where um Clyton Mestra's kind of the scene, you have the they had the classic thing with the screen with the stage moving around the revolving stage to reveal Agamemnon's body. And there was Clyton Mestra standing over him and she was actually wearing a fruit one the liberty cap like um, Marianne's wearing in the Delacroix painting. And I mean again one wouldn't want to claim Clyton Mestra some amazing feminist hero. She um no. <laughs> but there is something about that image of her standing over this powerful man and that incredible kind of embodiment of masculinity having killed him in his bath with a liberty from yeah. that really yeah i mean it is an incredibly powerful ambiguous image and yeah i wanted to kind of capture those kind of yeah that kind of power and language and just forcing it's not so much i want people to kind of think oh gosh yeah i can really see where she's coming from as question their own attitudes to what they do and the kind of the criticisms always made her thought of herself she's so stupid you know why is she doing this why is she put up with this and that kind of well, what would you do and why should she do any differently why yeah, should yeah. you expect her to behave better somehow than anyone else yeah it's um yeah she's actually she's kind of a lot of that actually comes out of me um it was a couple of, it was a couple of years ago when there was that. When there was a the coup against Robert Mugabe, and it was at the same, there was stuff about Grace Mugabe, and there's a lot of stuff about Grace Mugabe. And it was the same time as there was a lot of stuff about Melania Trump before she was really kind of, when she was being seen very much as a victim, there was all that, yeah, yeah you know, that kind of Melania blink if you need help stuff. Yeah. She must, you know, kind of, she must be kind of. Somehow Trump must have somehow tricked her into marrying him, and she must be a prisoner, and she was terrified to leave him. And then it's kind of was contrasting that with the coverage of Grace Mugabe, who similarly is a woman who married a much, who was married to a, sort of married a much older, very politically powerful, very powerful man. As far as you can see, he essentially Mugabe, Robert Mugabe, essentially married her because she was extremely attractive. Mm-hmm. Um, and both of them, then the treatments, the difference between the treatments of the two of them, that Melania must be this kind of victim, she must need help, she must be in, sort of trapped in this marriage, and Grace Mugabe must be this evil, scheming, manipulating woman. And both of them are kind of thinking, well, actually, personally, they're probably both having pretty good lives in some ways. I mean... Yeah, but that's an interesting sort of bias, isn't it? Sort of like... yes. <laughs> Yes. yes, I mean, I think it's fairly obvious what the yeah. difference between Melania Trump and Grace Mugabe might be. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It,
0: it's one of those things and you think, oh, people are still going there and it's
1: yes. awful. Yes. And all of that, I wanted to kind of really, I did want to kind of really go out there with Thalia that she is, she does, her role in the story is this very traditional she's the love interest, her entire role is in some ways to be the traditional love interest but it's that actually that kind of taking that from what's her perspective on this, what what's she getting out of this, how does she feel about the position she's in and the fact that she's got this kind of strange position as essentially as kind of incredibly powerful because she's someone else's because she's someone's wife and I wanted to really unpack that and look at what she was and what she was doing and kind of in the same way that actually things like the Medea and yeah and the Agamemnon things do when they take women in an incredibly misogynistic society and look at it, not necessarily saying, hey, this is a great way to be, but hey, this is asking you to start to try and think about this, can yeah. think about, how you, think about how, these, how you would be as a person in this situation, and not so easily just kind of condemn or kind of say you'd be better, we on most, I remember this absurd column in the Guardian's woman page saying, oh, it was after all that awful stuff, I mean all sorts of hideous stuff about the, essential, art, well the concentration camps basically on the American yeah. Southern border, so and this woman sort of saying, well Melania must leave Trump now, and know what, 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 what? <laughs> what's that got to do with anything? you know, it's, what has, what her husband's regime are not doing got anything to do with whatever the very complicated slightly strange but on the other hand presumably fairly mutually self-exploiting both totally exploiting each other relationship between the two of them is I'm sorry
0: yeah it's <laughs> yeah she's yeah it, it's uh <laughs> I mean he's trying to trying to sort of put into words how you feel about it and it just kind yeah. of
1: dissolves into yes. just rage I yes. <laughs> yes. yes, I mean I don't want you to kind of I don't want to in any way suggest I'm defending Melania Trump, but I kind of feel it's so that's the point, it's so easy for people to take this kind of, oh well, you know, we're just so morally better than other people. And that somehow that kind of it's just such a facile kind of sense yeah. that people have Okay, so I have
0: another question and that is um what what are you working on next uh, have you got any any new projects on the go and are you allowed to talk about them
1: i'm kind of on some really early stage of stuff it really took me a long time to really get my head together after i'd finished the, the series um because it was such a i mean it was draining the yeah the third book i went into some really really personal places um there's some stuff in it about women and children that is incredibly personal um and yeah I did kind of go in some really really kind of intense places it took it took a lot out of me the third book it was wonderful to write but it did take a lot out of me and then it wasn't like because I didn't sort of think I am going to write a fantasy series it wasn't like I then was kind of like okay I'm going to write another fantasy series you see what I mean it's um the books kind of started without any I was probably halfway through the first draft of Court Break and I I had any sense of it was a book it was just something I was writing it was just this kind of thing I was suddenly doing quite compulsively Mm -hmm. having not written for very very long have it was the first thing I ever wrote as an adult essentially the first piece of fiction I wrote as an adult Wow (laughs) <laughs> but I wrote all the time when I was a child and a mm. teenager, um, and then I stopped writing. I mean, I wrote essays and stuff, but the Good Broken Knives was just—I just sat down, and this thing just kind of happened. Not having written for about ten years, and so it wasn't like I had any kind of plan for anything or any kind of sense of like, "Hooray, I've got this amazing career as a writer now!" So this is what I'm going to do next. It was just I'm just writing out everything i am just written out everything that matters to me and then it's a bit like, oh, oh, um, arg. And then, of course, my agents, people are like, oh, what are you doing next? Like, I I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Being tired. <laughs> <laughs> Recovering. And so, and-
0: I was just going to say, as a follow-up, what are, you, what are you doing to refill that well? Um, so
1: where do you sort of wrote from. Reading a lot, which has been wonderful. Um, I didn't actually, I sort of, didn't read that much fantasy while I was writing because it I started to realize how weird it was once I was writing once it was once I sort of once it was clear that I was writing fantasy yeah I was writing a novel and then particularly once I'd got the agent and then the book deal and it was it actually became really weird reading particularly kind of contemporary authors having this weird sense of like oh god am i doing this as well or should i not do this kind of, it was a really really strange experience trying to write read and i'd start kind of channeling other people's voices or i'd start kind of getting too derivative or i start kind of worrying that i was going to nick stuff from them it just it was just oh mm-hmm. it was kind of um so i sort of was re- i was actually reading a lot of uh things like military history factual stuff that was very kind of clean prose very separate yeah kind of prose i write just to keep my head clean so it's been wonderful diving back into a huge pile of novels and reading or just yeah and kind of remembering all the new wonderful amazing fantasy worlds and why i love them why i love the genre so much well that's the next
0: so that's the next thing i'm sort of moving on to so what have you been reading
1: oh goodness actually i've been reading a lot of the really kind of classic stuff like moorcock and mm-hmm. um uh, what oh, I, read, actually, I read M. John Harrison's realist novel Climbers recently which is um, it's a, a sort of there are clearly similarities with his own life, the main character is called Mike it, kind of how much you take from it as gosh this is M. John Harrison's life I don't know but it's, I mean like, you, I just forget having not read Viraconian for a while just how unbelievable um, his prose is and just how it's just uh, I had this wonderful moment. I promised actually I promised Stephen Erickson I introduced I will get him reading M. John Harrison because he did not know of M. John Harrison. I, I managed to I have was um told Stephen Erickson that Stephen Erickson's own books so I bought a footnote to Verriconian and he must read Verriconium. Which, <laughs> <laughs> which was good. Um but yeah no actually at the moment I'm actually reading uh, Michael Moorcroft's the um, history of the rune staff, which is yeah. just awesomely cool. Just kind of like again, just why i love fantasy why i've always loved fantasy just kind of just so so far out there and just insanely insanely madly beautiful
0: excellent and um so this is kind of moving on to the part of the podcast where i ask some of you the questions that i ask everybody yes and um, that was the first one so the next question is um what do you listen to or what have you heard
1: oh in terms of music or yeah or anything okay so i actually have lucky cds that i listen to when i'm writing which means i barely i always i basically i listen to the same about three cds all the time um so i listen to a couple of leonard cohen cds the one called various positions which is just superb it's got this wonderful song about um uh someone who's kind of a the captain who's um he's they're in a they're in a war and they this is wonderful line i don't, don't even know who we're fighting for who we're fighting or what for and this it's just this kind of lovely incredibly cynical song about life and um yeah no i love Leonard Cohen. and Karen. i listened to Len, a couple of these then and a couple of Cohen albums and a band called uh, Soul invictus who are industrial folk yeah they're just superb, Tony Wakeford, I'm kind of honoured to say is a Facebook friend of mine and Excellent. I've sort of spoken to him, I sent him signed book plate. Um, the third, one of the, the final parts of The Court of Broken Knives is called The Blade and that's in honour of his album, their album The Blade, which is a piece of industrial folk essentially, a, it's an album essentially about communism and fascism and them both just kind of crushing human spirit. Yes. And it's, um, they're a very misunderstood band. They have been considered to be a band of the far right, which, because they sing about the death of Europe and the kind of ruin of Europe, and they use imagery like the kind of destruction of Europe. But Mm -hmm. of course, the point they're making is that Europe is destroying itself. It's not, it's, you know, look (laughs) look at what Western culture's doing. It's kind of it's they kind of use it they're kind of pointing out that yes everything is dying and collapsing but that's that's not quite to do with the thing that somehow certain people seem to have managed to convince us all that yeah so anyway some of us anyway that it is it's um yeah so they are but they are just again their lyric tiny wakeford's lyrics are so beautiful so haunting so powerful just and very 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 bleak in places very nihilistic but he he's a romantic, I'm a romantic, that kind of terrible, notion, haunting notion that love probably will end horribly badly, your heart will be broken, but that love still is the only thing you can cling on to, That if that, that is the only thing that can somehow make, that can save, and love can save everything, it's just it will also inevitably lead to just pain. Yes. and suffering it's that that knife edge that it's always worth it it's always worth loving and being loved even though there'll always be pain that's that's the kind of a root of tony's writing and he's yeah know he's a he's an absolute genius i love his cds there and um yeah that's that's about all i listened to okay <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah i really should listen to some more to modern music and things. Um, oh, there's an amazing African band I've been listening to actually, a man um, called Coco Co, who are I think, they're Ghanaian. It's kind of Ghanaian, kind of industrial, sort of Ghanaian or industrial alternative. Okay. So it's got some traditional elements of kind of traditional West African music, and it's sung in a mixture of English, French, and a couple of different West African languages and it's just it's so full of energy it's so dynamic again it's dark it's yeah. angry it's incredibly sexy it's yeah they're called Coco Co, Co. it's ko exclamation mark ko exclamation mark ko exclamation mark and they're they're amazing they're absolutely superb they're um they're proper old-school industrial with a okay. kind of west african flavor
0: that sounds amazing i'm yes. gonna to have to check them out
1: they are really cool
0: So the next question I ask is, um, what have you seen or what have you been watching?
1: Oh, I can see, I don't really watch television. I am coming across as such a kind of one completely rarefied intellectual elite to clearly someone who doesn't have any contact with the modern world at
0: all. Um, I I did say sort of seeing and watch. So things like, you know, if you've you've been to the theatre or if you've you've been to the cinema to see a film. So it's anything really. See, I
1: don't I don't really get out. Oh actually I'm going to go and see um Philip Glass's Fay at the mm-hmm. English National Opera house at the at the Coliseum on yeah. Monday which I'm really looking forward to. I haven't read the reviews. It I think it's its premiere. It's just sort of op- it's just opened. Mm-hmm. I haven't read the reviews, but I went to see the last thing I saw in the theatre actually was at, in the spring I think. I went to see Aknoten at the ENO which was, it was just impossibly beautiful. I mean, again, at, at points, I was you're kind of sitting there, a part of me, the part of me kind of is sort of thinking like, God, this is this is why people voted for Brexit, isn't it? And there's all these incredibly rich, arty, intellectual, liberal elite types sitting here, and we're watching, basically a guy, wearing a body stocking a pair of false breasts, wailing away in something that we're told is Acadian. While some people crawl across, and also in body stockings, crawl across the stage juggling balls and then do kind of interpretive mime to indicate mm-hmm. their deep soul pain that the art the, is not speaking to them. And part of you is like, God, this is, this is why people turn to Nigel Farage, isn't it? <laughs> 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 this, is, this is why I can really understand somehow part of me. Why people start voting for the Brexit party when I look at the people in this audience are all sitting there like oh my god it's just such a profound exploration of identity and sexuality and religion and the self like it's not actually a guy in a body stopping in false breasts wailing away at all it's like it's so man but <laughs> but it was it was god it was just sublime it was just it was that that line that really, really, really high modernist culture walks between God, this is absurd and God, this is just sublime. This is just incredible. This is just the most intense, beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. And I think it was Oh and I went to see the other thing, amazing thing, I went to see it, it? Was the Tate. I went to see that. Um This is Real Life by the guy whose name I have a complete mental block for, who famously did the sun the the sun at the Tate modern in the Turbine Hall and that was absolutely incredible that was just the most that was amazing amazing life joyous life-affirming piece of art um art spectrum
0: that sounds that sounds fantastic um that's one of the things uh, because i try and go to the theater as much as possible um and and it's like when you go and see something experimental it, it there there is sort of like a fine line between um this is absolute tosh and this is genius and <laughs> and sometimes you don't know what you're going to get and uh, uh sort of i you know i have dabbled with going to see some like physical theater and where it gets you know really experimental and when it's good there is nothing else like it but when it's bad oh my word, do you just want the the, the whole the whole the seat to swallow you because you're just like no this is so cringe
1: <laughs> yeah it is such a fine line somehow it's just and it's difficult it's impossible to put into words quite what the difference is quite what it is that just that thing that
0: yeah, yeah oh yeah it's it's, it's really it's, it's odd but what you you know it when you feel it and it's it's almost like there's there's yeah it's it's really quite bizarre yes. <laughs> now um just moving on i you, you sort of hinted earlier that you you play or you've played some D, so i'm going to ask you what have you
1: been playing or if you if you still play or i don't play anymore oh no i did play i played in the summer um Excellent. Now, i didn't i played obsessively when i was at university we had this we play all the the whole of us in our house played we were all housemates playing the first year we were in halls and we' were all in the same halls of residence and we all played and the next year we moved in together and it was slightly obsessive because yeah we did <laughs> nothing but play and mm-hmm. we would spend friday night playing that we' were in role sort of d ding being in the pub and it was a bit bizarre like you know we could actually go to the pub out of character at some point you know like just actually leave the house but um but i mean it was yeah it was pretty incredible i was studying classics all day and then playing this amazing kind of uh it's like the dream quest of unknown kadath meets legend um meets terry pratchett um, <laughs> fantasy setting it was just it was just awesome but um i daren't play seriously anymore because i stopped writing because um
0: yeah
1: i only write because i don't play D&D. <laughs> So <laughs> if i got back to playing dnd it would be great but i wouldn't get i wouldn't write again ever but okay. um I, yeah, I played over the summer. I did this bizarre D and D pop podcast that a guy called Joel Cornor does, who is he was the Twitter account of the Milliverse. Which oh, nice. Yes, he was this Twitter account which it for one for a while it was really popular. It was yes. in um, yeah, it was in it was being mentioned in all the broadsheets and things. It was um it was this Twitter account that was just basically pointing what the world would be like if Ed Miliband had won the yeah. Yes. If Ed Miliband had not eaten that bacon sandwich, basically. yes, basically. <laughs> it was such a. I think Joel had to stop in the end because it just got too painful. It was. Just, yeah. <laughs> meanwhile, in the Milliverse, the great issue of the day: the country is divided over whether you put ketchup or baked brown sauce on your <laughs> bacon sandwich. <laughs> 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 but yeah, so he did this bizarre D and D campaign where we were. The party plus various plus a special guest star is sort of working, slowly working to get a candidate elected for general election. I think I think he was going to have a general election in his D D world coinciding with the general election that's happening now. But of course, I don't think he's got the time now because it was quite sudden. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're going to do some kind of election night special. And um, yeah, that was it was completely bizarre. and I have never worked out what actually had anything to do with politics at all because it really didn't but it was that was completely that was a lot of fun and ended up with a um, a giant octopus called crime squid even that was a giant octopus that we were going to feed a we were going to defeat it if we were going to defeat the super bad guy by feeding this giant octopus a very strong laxative and seeing what um, it was that kind of level. Of, I was introduced with, um, with having had no, having had no kind of preamble at all. I was introduced with the, the party was walking past a house, and they noticed the house was full of rice and someone was pumping the water. The house full of water, which made the rice swell up and expand until the house exploded, and my guest star character surfed out of the house on a sort of wet tidal wave of rice. And appeared in front of the party, who then sort of asked me, Hello, what are you doing? To which I had no reply. <laughs> 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 well,
0: that that sounds like an absolute hoot. Um because <laughs> <It was laughs> <so. laughs> I
1: mean, you it, want to come up with a witty retort uh, that you can make in that circumstance.
0: That's one of the things I find really hard with role-playing is is I, I I really just struggle to just come out with things instantly. I, I sort of I get really really flustered and nervous. But I, I've have gone back and I've started playing again, and it's been so much fun. So it, it, it it's really nice. And it it there just, just seems to be such a high correlation between the, uh, sort of authors who also uh, role play, and I find that fascinating as well.
1: Yeah, I mean it's all just different ways of telling stories. It's, yeah, um, yeah, and I mean I I'm really amazed by authors who can do both. Because I couldn't live in both worlds. Um, mm-hmm. I remember explaining to my having trying to find a way of explaining to my boss, my sort of evil boss. I've got a wonderful boss at the moment. I had a very evil boss a couple of years ago, and trying to explain to her that she couldn't possibly expect me to hold all kinds of things about, you know, how last week's planning meeting could possibly impact on next week's. Logistics meeting and how you know holding different work areas and meetings and things in my head to have some kind of aha Well, you know if you refer back to the totally different meeting I was in last week thing that you're supposed to do in meetings and Mm -hmm. your coherence thinking and strategy and all that Because how could I possibly expect to think about have all that stuff in my head when I had my own world in my head I had the entire world of um, the second apocalypse in my head and I had the whole world of Game of Thrones in my head. I mean, how could I possibly expect to remember anything else? So I was having to remember all these complicated genealogies <laughs> yes. about different noble houses and work out how could I possibly mix and you know, having I had to I had three different entire world geographies in my head that I remember. How could I possibly expect to remember anything beyond that? And D D would just be a step too far. Being yeah. immersed in another world would just be a step too far. Oh,
0: that, that's just a brilliant image. <laughs> So, um, we're, we're sort of coming to the end of our interview, and I'm just asking my final question, which I ask everybody, and uh, you can interpret this in whichever way you like. And it's what needs more love?
1: What needs more love? Love. More what, sorry? More love. More love? Yes. Ooh, um, what needs more love? Ah. Uh... I agree with many things, Um, the European Union, Um, yes, I mean, yes, I mean, genuinely, all these kind of arguments about, oh, well, we'd be financially, well, we'd be financially slightly better off or worse off, oh, well, we might be 1% worse off on GDP if we leave the EU, so we to stay in the EU, I mean, God, that's just such a pathetic argument, the argument is, the European Union was founded to stop people going to war. Yes. What is not to love about that concept? And not to say, hey, that's kind of worth preserving, it might have its flaws, but that's basically a club formed to keep people being friends. What well, is not to love about that idea? But um, what else needs more love? In the genre world, Mike Fletcher needs more love. My dear friend Mike Fletcher, who wrote Beyond Redemption, which is, again, an incredibly political, he doesn't present it as political, it's a completely bonkers. It's like the bad taste of the epic fantasy world. It's completely insane. It, it apparently he, he he got his agent because she read a particular scene in the book where they're making soup, and she was herself eating soup, and she nearly threw up. And that was the point she knew she had to sign him. It comes it, <laughs> across. It's absolutely just kind of the most just. It's like bad taste, slot comedy, horror, epic fantasy. But it is so important politically. Actually, it's so so. Mike is. He's like me, he's utterly cynical, which means he's kind of pointing out how the world really is. It comes across as utterly cynical and nihilistic. But at heart, it's about how wonderful people are and how actually we're all absolutely flawed, deeply, deeply troubled, deeply, deeply messed up people. And the kind of basically the, the hope for the future is when people actually realise that. And it's just, they're magnificent books, they're absolutely magnificent books, nice books, everyone ought to read them. Um, what else needs more love? Uh, Deborah Wolfe also needs more love. She's another fantastic grimdark author. She writes sort of really cool grimdark feminist novels. She needs a lot more love. Mm-hmm. Um, just, yeah, um, all the books, diverse, interesting, exciting fantasy yeah. books. I saw another thing kicking off, great thing, a guy, um, wonderful guy called Stuart Hudson, this morning today at some point has called out wired for um all their list of top their list of top fantasy and science fiction for this year which she's called out as being all dominated as being hugely dominated by white men which she's pointing out is just absurdity in this time and um, it is but yeah if you look at the people who have been published they put Margaret Atwood on there twice and so that's all right but um if you look at, you know, if you look at the, just the gamut of books that have been published this year by some amazing people writing some really amazing interesting stuff that isn't
0: not yeah have they not seen the who won the heroes this year
1: (laughs) um, so um i mean the um the campbells the camp it's not called the campbell anymore the the what is it called now it's called the is it whatever it's called wonder well um it was called the campbell at the time but look at so the shortlist for that was all women and I think I'm right in saying almost all of the none of them were kind of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant women they were all women from a very interesting diverse range of backgrounds and then if you look at the long list which I'm privileged amazing privileged have on again I think it, my understanding is it was all women and again women from a very wide range of ethnicities religions yeah. cultures and that that's the kind of that was the list of best new voices in fancy and science fiction this year and that was that was wonderful and that should be being shouted from the rooftops and it's but there no, we have the same white guys turning up again and again so yeah the um the what was whatever what was at the time the campbell long list that that needs to be mm-hmm. shouted from the rooftops and celebration given a lot more love excellent
0: well thank you very much for your time today uh, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you um where can people find you um if they want to sort of like tell you how wonderful you are
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> i'm on facebook as anna smith spark i have a facebook pay author page anna smith spark and a facebook uh, just person anna smith spark which is kind of weird mix of stuff about my writing fangirling about the people's writing and uh, lots of Getting upset about politics and photos of the cool places I go most weekends because I have small children and I have to get out the house. So I drag them round. There's photos of stately homes and art galleries and things posted every weekend because, hey, I'm the kind of mum who drags her children around art <laughs> every weekend. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'm on Twitter as well. You can, I mean, you can look for Anna Smith Spark or I'm Queen of Grimdark, which started as a joke. It was actually Mike Fletcher's. People have this thing self-appointed. Like, which no one ever makes about Joe Abercrombie, who, of course, tweets as yeah. Lord of Grimdark. No one ever says Joe Abercrombie, the self-appointed Lord of Grimdark, which is, again, is, is interestingly telling, but I was yeah. not appointed. It's on the front of one of my books. It was Mike Fletcher, or oh, Hail the Queen of Grimdark. But yeah, I'm now stuck with it, of course, because I can't change my Twitter yeah. handle. So, um, <laughs> one day when I'm writing chick-lit romantic literature, or chick-lit romantic comedy, some people are saying, Anna, why what so it's a long story <laughs> but I'd lose, <laughs> some, I'd lose lots of followers if i changed it now No one knew who i was anymore so um yeah and i'm kind of supposedly on instagram as anna smith spark as well but i don't really get instagram it's, i don't quite understand how it works with books things it, no. it pictures but I occasionally pictures of things i saw in art galleries or cakes um oh
0: well cakes
1: <laughs> yes but i'm always i love it i don't spend as much time on social media as I used to because I'm tired a lot and mm. not been particularly well recently and it's doing some bits of social media are doing my head in completely
0: yes
1: yeah. a lot of people in Britain America and most other countries I'm increasingly beginning to feel um but yeah I do love chatting to love meeting people on Facebook and Twitter and engaging with people but yeah I am sometimes a bit rubbish at replying to message requests and things because my computer keeps hiding them and also because I get tired and forget or just can't face I'm probably going to stay off social media the week of the election let's say so. yeah
0: <laughs> that's probably the wisest course of action yes. <laughs> it's exciting it's, it's life exciting and terrifying <laughs> <laughs> so terrifying
1: <laughs> I mean when it gets to the point when you're just sort of on bbc fresh f- clicking news refresh every five minutes thinking like what what, what's happened now what can possibly have happened now oh my god it's getting even worse it's um yeah yeah it's just
0: every, every day is <laughs> <it's> just...
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was actually i was remembering um remember a friend of mine complaining uh, someone pointed out it all started with david bowie dying was it the beginning? Of, was it? 20, I can never remember now how long ago it was. Was it twenty sixteen? There was like I th-
0: think it must have been because there was that was the year of death. Was
1: yes, it? that was the year. Yes, so David. But he died. Started everything was just going along perfectly normally, and then suddenly David Bowie died, and then the same week, Jerry Hall announced she was engaged to Rupert Murdoch, and just nothing ever recovered. No, that was what started it all. It was it, David that, Bowie. Okay. Yes.
0: Yeah we're definitely in the darkest timeline <laughs> yes
1: i remember someone complaining at the time on social media saying like, look can we go back can we kind of go back a couple of weeks here just rewind time a bit because it's all a bit old and weird and you're like now oh, there's innocent times when jerry hall marrying rupert murdoch was your idea of weird bad news
0: yes <laughs> oh dear yeah <laughs> Oh, so one day it will be better again. It must be. It can't carry on. <laughs>
1: Actually, someone points out, I've been watching I've been watching the original series, of, original Star Trek, because mm-hmm. uh, it's just, and again, I'm sitting there, and it's like, what happened? What happened to that idea that technology might think make things better, and that, you know, we could use technology to alleviate poverty and get rid of intolerance and racism, and just, you know, we could all just be happy in a nice, we could all just, be nice to each other in a nice world. I mean how did that become such an inconceivable idea? But um but someone pointed out recently because I was saying that, oh god they were sort of pointing out that actually uh, there's all that stuff about how don't we have doesn't that have to be a nuclear war or something for the federation to emerge that basically we are the sacrificial lambs living yeah. through yeah. the dark times and then in the future our great great grandchildren will build the stuff that we will build the federation and it will all be wonderful it's just um unfortunately we won't be there to see it so no. we can take comfort that our suffering may have may may lead to know a great some great end but um it's just the kind of suffering of the people who will not see the end
0: yeah <laughs> oh <laughs> <Aww. laughs> well brilliant Anna. you've been an absolute gem today thank you again so much for your time and giving such a wonderful reading and you know joining me on a on a dark sort of Thursday evening to, to talk about you know your work and everything
1: and just want to say thank you very much well, thank you thank you for having me it's wonderful it's really it's it's lovely to do it and thank you thank you for thank you for asking really interesting questions as well and... oh well, good <laughs> <laughs>